Greetings. We offer these podcasts freely, and your support really makes a difference. To make a donation, please visit tarabrock.com. Namaste. Greetings, friends. My guest today is Lama Rod Owens, who's a, a friend, a teaching colleague. Lama Rod's an author, an activist, and he's an authorized Lama, which is a Buddhist teacher in the Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism. He has a Master of Divinity in Buddhist Studies from Harvard Divinity School, and it's got a focus on the intersection of social change, identity, and spiritual practice. His books include Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger, and he's the co-author of Radical Dharma. His new book is called The New Saints. So we'll be talking about his new book today, really how we can't separate our work for social transformation and liberation from the path of spiritual freedom. Um, We'll talk about how freedom comes from a very courageous kind of honesty and authenticity. We'll be exploring the need to attend to our social identities if we want to find out who we really are, the power of directly longing for freedom, awakened care, the role of prayer in spiritual practice, uh, relating to trauma on the path of liberation, forgiveness, the violence that can come from venerating others and diminishing ourselves, and really the centering of loving our own inner life. And Lama Rod leads a, a beautiful meditation on receiving love. So I wanted to give you a sense of uh, what was up and coming. It's so very rich and hope you enjoy. Okay, now for our conversation. So welcome, Lama Rod. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Well, you know, I mentioned when I emailed you that I spent a lot of last weekend with you and with your new book, The New Saints, and um, it's coming out this month. And so first off, what an amazing, deep you know, call to spirituality, the depths of spirituality, and um, engaged caring. I just loved it. And the thing that most uh, really struck me was your full humanness in it. It was just, mm-hmm. it's like you gave us this window yeah. You know, yeah. into your own raw process of metabolizing yeah. life and waking up. So I just yeah. wanted to start in with the book mm-hmm. and just ask you a bit about you know, your aspiration, mm-hmm. writing it, and how it feels having yeah. it to the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is such a different book. And I think you're, like, really noticing that. And I keep telling people, like, go of expectations about what you think the Dharma book um, is, because I just kind of do something. I just kind of, I let myself go, right? And my agenda or the ethic rather that I was really holding is what's telling the truth, 
right? And so many folks <clears throat> that I work with, you know, they're just really tired of like the bullshitting, right? They're tired of like teachers wanting to look good, but doing something really harmful, you know, when they're not public, you know? And then, and so I said, if I'm going to write this book, I'm going to tell the truth, right? And even though it hurts, <laughs> right? And that hurt is something that I took care of as I was writing the book, right? I have lots of support, right? When, when doing this kind of work, but yeah, to tell the truth, to tell the truth about the real work of waking up in the world right now. You modeled authenticity. I mean, you know, it. I kept feeling the courage of that, that um, doesn't mean there's no fear. It means there's right. fear and you take mm -hmm. a step anyway for the sake of truth. And yeah. um, I loved it. And I want to um, just kind of the, you know, the takeaway mm -hmm. you make so clear right from the start is that when we talk about spirituality, when we talk about real liberation, it's inseparable. The ultimate liberation is inseparable from uh, giving ourselves to our world, yeah. to our society, um, reducing harm. And so I just wanted to hear from you a little mm -hmm. more on how that has come through for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to, to tell the truth is to really start getting free. Right. And if I don't tell the truth, then I find myself cycling in these experiences of delusion. Right. That really, of course, leads to more suffering and harm against myself and harm against others. You know, but to but to kind of like remove the mask and to say, listen, I know that you're trying to have fun, you know, and get comfortable and have an experience in this process are in this field of spirituality but i have to tell you for me it's been work it's been kind of grueling mm. right um it has taken a kind of labor that i didn't even think was possible right to develop a deeper awareness of why i suffer and the choices that i have to start to make to divest from the causes and conditions of suffering and to reinvest in wisdom, clarity, love, care, right, for myself. Um, I just am not interested in wanting to look good anymore, right? I'm interested in telling the truth of what this work costs and what we have to commit to. Because right now it's, we need more than like a kind of superficial surface kind of practice. We have to have a really deep, durable, resilient kind of practice right now. Um, like we have to really get into the depth of who and what we are and start doing some real healing. And part of that real healing is doing the real grieving work, right? And doing the real holding space for trauma. Yeah. Right. And real forgiveness. Right. And but it's also, yeah, it's also about having fun too. <laughs> right. So and yeah, yeah, yeah. This is hard. This is really hard labor, but you can also have fun with this. 
And for me, my experience of pleasure and fun has also deeply correlated to the intensity of my work. So another way that I like to put this is that I've learned to work hard and I've learned to play hard mm. at mm. the same time to balance out, you know, this work of getting free. Well, it sounds like a um, recipe for living it fully. Yeah. Um, you are very wholehearted. <laughs> mm -hmm. Comes through. So I want I want to actually touch on each of the things you named. It means this. It means this. Yeah. And mm -hmm. to maybe begin with, part of the effort you point to, you you have this this phrase in there that says that a new saint is a being. Mm -hmm in this world, in a body with identities. Mm -hmm. And that part of this effort and work is embracing the complexity of our identities. And I wanted to name, and this is um, maybe in the spirit of authenticity, that, I mean, those who are listening now are going to have mm -hmm all sorts of mixed identities, yeah. some more privileged, some disprivileged, mm -hmm. you know, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Right. So what I have more and more become aware of Lamarad is that as a white person, mm -hmm. as a person that is comfortable financially, mm -hmm. class-wise and so on, in this, I have seen people, me and people like myself that, and they downgrade the importance of tending to identity right. because, you know, it's obvious, you know, right. we're the ones that are privileged at the, you know, taking from others. It doesn't end up being the problem that, mm -hmm. that you know, alerts us. Mm -hmm. But what I've noticed is then in spiritual circles, the rationale is uh, it's all just different forms of suffering, all mm -hmm. suffering is equal you know, we're all one. Why do we, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard right. to try to realize that. And, I, and I've just watched in my own life, because mm -hmm. you talked about effort, the place that has been the hardest and the most effort is facing the meaning of whiteness, the mm -hmm. meaning of privilege, mm -hmm. um, and finding under it what I thought wasn't a thing that mattered so much, mm -hmm. that it was the huge suffering of the way that made me separate. It made me smaller. It narrowed me. But mm -hmm. it took really digging in to realize that it wasn't optional. It was an right. essential part. And it is, I'm saying was. I'm. Right. It's an ongoing thing. It's like this mm -hmm. essential effort. Yeah. Keep on attending to the ways these identities right. surface. So I I'm bringing my own example yeah. in because I'm imagining you run into that a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for for sharing and for being open like this, you know, because this again is the the intention of the book is to invite people to start telling the truth and to start getting much more curious about how we show up within this kind of intersectional identity, you know? Um, 
But I think it's, you, you, you name something really important, you know, and I've had this conversation before many times in the past where it's like, well, I'm not suffering, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm good, you know, I'm enjoying this life. I've had conversations exactly like that where people have come to tell me I'm not really suffering that much, right? And I say, well, yeah, you know, in a way you're kind of coasting above these deeper, you know, expressions of suffering. But what we're trying to do is get really curious. We're trying to, through awareness, kind of sink into and expand deeper into who and what we are, right? And so I want to, I want to connect to my innate Buddha nature, right? This is our, our line. But what really that means is that I want to experience who I am beyond self and identity and ego, right? And I think that is the project of Buddhism is to, to help us remember who we are, right? That this, this world, this relative world of identity and ego is just an illusion, it's a distraction that we've gotten kind of gotten wrapped up in, right? And Buddhism and Dharma is about pointing us back to who and what we are. But to get back, right, we have to unpack the ways in which we have misunderstood identity and created meanings around identity that um, have created suffering for ourselves and suffering for others, both um, as individual experiences as well as collective experiences as well, right? And it's hard to tell people who aren't connecting to that suffering initially that, oh, there's suffering. And I invite you to return back to that suffering to begin to actually figure out who you are beyond whiteness or beyond gender or class or ability and so forth. Like, who are you really, right? Um, because for me, on, on the other hand, yes, I have been painfully aware of identity since the moment I was conscious in this world, right? Like, I've never not known that I was Black. Right. And as I've gotten older, I always know that I'm queer. I always know that I'm fat identified. Right. All of that, you know. And so I've had, you know, what at the beginning, I felt like it was a disprivilege to be so intimately connected to the suffering of these identities and the relative. But now I understand these as privileges because it has invited me to break through the suffering disprivileged narratives of these identities to come into a deeper um, experience of who I am. So I can, I can experience these identities, but also now because of the work that I've done to unpack the suffering, to tend to that suffering, I can also experience a lot more freedom in this body. You know, yes, systematic racism still is a thing. Yes, all the stuff is still happening, but at this point in my practice, these systems don't, they don't um, inform me in the same way that they used to. Or another way of saying is that, saying this is that, you know, they no longer, these systems no longer tell me who I am. I have a deeper experience of who I am, which is helping me to experience a lot of fluidity and clarity right now, moving through the world, right? But again, just to reiterate this, it's taken a lot of work to move through these expressions of trauma, you know, that has been so deeply related to identities of disprivilege, right? To, 
to to move through that to re, to to tend to it to let it go right to connect to space and emptiness and energy right and to begin to celebrate like who I am because ultimately we are all buddhas and I'm connecting to that more and more every day which is a source of joy for me mm-hmm. you know i think it's easy for people to listen and say well you've had to work hard because mm-hmm. there are more kind of layers of mm-hmm. woundedness from mm-hmm. generations and from the society yeah. you know if i've had more privilege you know mm-hmm. maybe because I, there's not so much obvious wounding i don't need to work so hard mm-hmm. And that is a delusion because in a way there's identification, but because there's not as much over suffering, it's easier to miss it and it's there. And that's the thing. That's the thing that really grabbed me. I didn't realize Mm -hmm. that the identity that was unconscious Mm -hmm. as a white person, Mm -hmm. as a privileged person, was actually causing suffering that I wasn't aware of. Yeah, yeah. And a huge amount of um, opening to a very profound sense of belonging, yeah. like true belonging, yeah. when I started realizing how it had kept me apart, yeah. how it had cocooned me. So yeah. I'm just yeah. taking in more of what you're saying about yeah. we really need to pay attention. Yeah. Well, you know, it's really interesting because in the book, you know, and also in my previous work, I've really talked about how relative identity is an expression of trauma, right? Because it takes us so, it's a misunderstanding of who we are. And we get stuck in that misunderstanding, creating meanings that come, you know, at at the this privilege, you know, um, and the harm and violence and manipulation of so many people you know, in other identity locations, but specifically even talking about whiteness, right? Whiteness is an expression of violence that's been normalized. I only know that because I, you know, embodied as a Black person, I sit at the other extreme of whiteness, you know, and I can feel the harm that whiteness has created for me and my ancestors, you know, and will continue to create into the future for my descendants, right? And then you say, oh, but this is normal. But then when you hear people say, no, actually, your normal identity location is actually supported by the violence against me and my marginalization and erasure, right? It's the same thing with being cisgender as well. Like, we think this is normal, right? And that comes at the the harm of, of our trans community a non-binary and gender expressive community, right? And so, yeah, there for me is suffering and always thinking that where I've been put is where I need to stay. When in fact, my goal is to get fluid and open, right? And to begin to welcome who I can become when I let go of holding so desperately to some place I've been put by systems and institutions, right? You know what you're saying, um, you have a term that I've heard before, and you really bring it alive of spiritual abolitionist, yes, which mm-hmm. is like 
all, you know, abolishing all the layers of, of yeah. our binds and our chains, and, you know, obviously the, the more overt ones, but subtler and subtler. So mm -hmm. we're truly free. And you write beautifully about Harriet Tubman, who mm -hmm. coming into the collective consciousness more and more these mm -hmm. days. I want to read you one to the, all those that are listening, just one uh Let me show you what I'm reading from first. This is <laughs> the New Saints, and I and I just love the cover, and I kind of dressed to match with it. <laughs> um, so, we're, you know, it's a beautiful book. So, okay. Um, Mother Harriet, as an awakened bodhisattva, knew the real freedom is realizing the essence of everything. And to experience that realization, our abolition practice must be also a spiritual practice in which we ally with the unseen world of beings who are working alongside us to get us and everything free. I can hear Mother Harriet now saying that if we ain't praying, we ain't serious about getting free. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That. Yeah, you have to name what you need. And a lot of us aren't naming that our deepest desire is actually to transcend the causes and conditions of suffering. And that has to be expressed as prayer, as aspiration, you know, but it has to be felt also as a deep longing. You know, for me, the longing to get free is so much a part of the spiritual abolition work, right? And my spiritual abolition work is, again, rooted in anti-slavery abolition, right? And for me, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner True, Frederick Douglass, and so forth, you know, they really embodied the spirit of spiritual abolition you know um but i think sometimes like i and this is an issue that i'm trying to to uncover more and more in my work is to to help people get clear about why they're practicing dharma and meditation to begin with i think that's really important because a lot of people are like yeah i just want to feel better i just want to be more comfortable i just want to be happy right and for me i i I never had those intentions. Like from the get-go, Dharma promised complete liberation from suffering. And that's why I signed up. You know, it's been great, right, to feel more comfort and more belonging and more expansion and spaciousness and happiness and joy. That's absolutely happened. But my goal has always been to transcend suffering itself and return back to who and what I am you know, being this expression of a Buddha, right? That's where I'm trying to go, but that's a hard, hard goal, right? That's that's the toughest agenda um, for us to aim for, but it's really the only agenda really to go for because everything else is just an illusion. Even comfort and happiness are fleeting, the relative experiences, you know? So when I talk about spiritual abolition, I'm talking about, cutting through everything and returning back to our most fundamental direct natures, you know, with an emptiness and space and this luminosity or energy, right? I just, I, I want to remember that because no one deserves to suffer, right? And that's a, an important part of my ethic. No one deserves to suffer, right? You know, we're all awakened. We just forgot. So like, why should we be suffering like this? Right, you know, and so yeah, I'm just like I want to go all the way, 
Like I, I bought into it and I'm like, I, I'm going to do it. Right. So part of what the takeaway on that is for me is that the real energy that liberates us is the longing to be free, that we're longing for it. It's like if we know what we, what most matters, then we get carried to it. That energy carries us home. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is we tend to fix on lesser outcomes, just out of habit. We, yeah. fi you know, we fix on more surface outcomes. So it seems like the real powerful inquiry is what most matters to your heart yeah. what is it really that you care about and you talk a lot about awakened care i mean mm -hmm. you do a beautiful job with that you know how it really has to do with decentering the self moving to we really really caring so i thought maybe just to ask you to mm -hmm. speak more about mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. absolutely awakened care was something that um, I really wanted to develop as an accessible way for people to really get into what it means to really care in a really profound way. Not kind of like a surface care, but a deep care, deep tending to, right? And, and you know, in general, this book is um, an expression of the Bodhisattva tradition, which is the Buddha saint tradition. Um, and the bodhicitta is the the state, the awakened state of the bodhicitta, you know, the awakened heart, mind, clarity, deep love, deep care, right? And as I was really moving through the book and I said, okay, these are just terms that we've used over and over and over again in Dharma books, but what is a, a different way? And I began to think about bodhicitta. And the first question I asked myself, how do I experience bodhicitta? Like, what is it for me? And I said, oh, it's love, this deep wish, you know, for people, all beings to be free, but it's also a deep, profound acceptance of everything to allow the phenomenal world to be and then choosing how to respond to the phenomenal world in a way that feels caring, right? So that was love. And then compassion for me is really the work of getting free from suffering, right? It's connecting to our suffering, the suffering of others and saying, okay, no more, let's get out of here. And of course, you know, the Buddha Tara, you know, is for me, the core um, practice around compassion. Like compassion, I think is just fierce, it's direct, right? But also I said, there's joy in this as well. Like I am so deeply appreciative for this opportunity to care right and to help people get free and to choose a path that's helping me to get free so i'm like so excited about that there's gratitude and joy and i use gratitude to get into joy in my practice as well and of course emptiness right like this is this is only possible because everything is arising out of the state you know that's malleable and shapeable and, and boundless right and that we can only get excited about liberation because it is possible to do so, <laughs> you know? And so I was like, okay, all of these together combine into, yes, this profound kind of care for ourselves and for others, 
but an awakened care that really takes into account that like this is leading us to ultimate liberation mm. you know, mm. as well. And this is just, again, you know, a way that I'm just trying to like relinguage, you know, um, some of these terms to get a, a different lens into it, you know. Um, and so, and I, in my practice, you know, it's about streaming and braiding all of these energies together and to begin to awaken a deep concern for everyone, including ourselves, right? And that takes us into the places um, that we traditionally have bypassed or run away from, you know? So this is energy. This is a state. This is like, this is what we use to take us into really hard work. And this is what I rely on you know, as well, this awakened care. You can't even do the hard work unless yeah. there's those different flavors of tenderness. Exactly. It, it actually softens things enough so we can begin to face and embrace what's most difficult. And I love the way you bring out the different flavors of care. It's, yeah. it's, it's love. It's also forgiveness and compassion mm-hmm. yeah. and, and emptiness. Yeah. And so you you say that the starting place or one of the important starting places is that we have to be able to uh, bring it inward to our own yeah. being and um, and like you I mean you you describe it as it starts with this unconditional acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. I I also feel like if we can open the door only by accepting what is, and then yeah. that naturally will turn into the tenderness of love. Um, to be who we are without judging, without policing, et cetera. And so for so many, Lamarad, you know this as well as I do, Mm -hmm. that's that's the big stopping place. It's like um, there is so much resistance to um, caring for our our own being. So I kind of wanted to ask you to speak on that just a little bit and also perhaps maybe just for a couple of minutes, just maybe guide a little bit of a practice on on receiving love. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think what keeps us from practicing, practicing this, you know, as as you talk about radical acceptance, (laughs) you know, is the heartbreak, right? Because once we start actually telling the truth about what's happening, then we have to cut through the narratives that have kept us safe from the deep disappointment. Right. And for me, the deep disappointment is, yeah, this isn't what I thought it was. Like this world that I was born into, like has taken so much work to understand. Right. And I have these ideas about freedom and equality and so forth, which seems to be so disrupted. Right. And so instead of like continuing to tell myself a narrative to feel good, I just say, you know what, in order to really get free from these narratives, I have to start naming them and then let my heart break, allow myself to touch into the deep disappointment, Mm. right? And that begins to, of course, disrupt our sense of self, right? And we begin to change, right? And that's a journey that, I mean, it, it may... It's it's the the roughest journey, I would say, in my practice and, and experience, the heartbreak, right? To let go of the narratives and to say, no, this is happening. 
But, you know, because I've worked with so many activists, you know, and am an activist, you know, and trained as an activist, I know that I can't really create the change that I need to, to, to see if I don't tell the truth about what's actually happening, right? If I don't tell the truth, then I'm just creating more layers of narratives that have nothing to do with really disrupting the causes and conditions of suffering, you know, both politically, socially, as well as ultimately, right? So love is, for me, like, again, you know, so important um, to, to work with and to embody, right? And so a really simple practice that I can offer in the book, and I've offered many kinds of practices around love, is just learning how to open to the love of the phenomenal world, including the love of people, uh, and, and animals. Um, I just think the phenomenal world is always trying to love us, including the elements, including the earth and water and everything. How can I just begin to open to that unconditional acceptance and feel that really awakened, you know, within my body and my mind and just sitting with that, you know? And a story that I, I um, tell in the book, um, or I tell in some book, <laughs> <laughs> but the story that I like to tell is that my real introduction to love came with understanding that love wasn't trying to erase anything, right? It was about holding space for everything, including the woundedness, right? And that just really transformed my relationship to love as well. So in this practice, just a short practice for a couple of minutes, you know, I always, you know, invite you to practice, you know, this first kind of love, which is care for your body, right? So just going into practice, I just ask my body what it needs, how it needs to be right now. And just allowing myself to take up space, right? To notice any tension, any holding on in places in my physical body and just letting it go. Right. We can use terms like relaxing as well, but whatever works for you, you know, in my practice, in my personal practice, I like to relax and open, you know, but often I say, come into a position that feels appropriate for you, where we're just able to hold space for both the comfort and the discomfort for this period of practice. And just offering my body this permission for me is my first experience of love happening, right? Because we have to love ourselves enough in order to do the work of getting free, right? We have to really believe that we're valuable enough to be free that we're important enough to be free. So this is one of the reasons why practices like this self-love, offering permission to the body, just to, to surrender to open is really important. And then I just begin to reflect, and I invite you to do this as well, to begin to reflect on Maybe a moment in your life where someone really offered you profound love. And particularly that moment where someone just really deeply accepted you 
really saw you, really held space for you, wasn't critiquing you, offering feedback, trying to police you or anything like that. They just allowed you to be. They saw you. They they empathized with you. They held space with you and for you. And this can be from a person. This can be from an animal. Any kind of being. But just remembering that experience and allowing that experience to begin to first awaken within the heart center. And so in my heart center, just feeling how returning back to this moment of experiencing deep love and care feels like something blossoming, awakening within my heart center. And I can imagine this energy as light, as soft white light that begins to radiate through my body or as warmth, right? Beginning to radiate through the body. Again, whatever feels appropriate to connect to is fine. And I'm just allowing this energy of receiving love from this benefactor to really just fill me up, radiate through my body. And the practice is just to experience this, to experience this awakening love and to allow this awakening love to even hold experiences of discomfort as they arise. And as this awakens more and more in your practice, I wonder if you can connect to other ways the phenomenal world around you is attempting to express this deep love and care for you and towards you. And so for example, I can feel the care of my house. As I sit here, it's protecting me from the elements, right? It's providing shelter. And I feel deep gratitude for that. And I just continue to allow my home in this moment to care for me. I allow the seat that I'm sitting on to care for me as it lifts to hold my body. The air that I'm breathing, the oxygen that I'm breathing is caring for my body as well. The clothes that I'm wearing are caring for me as well. They're keeping me warm and comfortable. So just getting curious and get opening to all the ways the phenomenal world is always trying to take care of us. 
and just sitting within that profound care just for another moment. And so when you're ready, I just invite you just to shift your attention to your seat and just noticing the weight of your body and the seat rising to hold you. Experiencing that anchoring, I now invite you just to bring some movement back into the body, some stretching, a few deep cleansing breaths. And just coming back into the moment. And so thank you so much for your practice. Thank you. That was, um, yeah, that was beautiful. I was, um, I was feeling completely what you were inviting forward. And um, also knowing there are times that, um, you know, I'll be, for myself but with others and it's like there are no there's this cutoff from any sense of anything in the world uh caring and loving you know and i know when that happens what i'll do is um feel the yearning to to let in love and and, and literally express it as a prayer like please yeah. love the universe and there's something about even when we're cut off if we can feel the longing for love, that is love in us calling out and, and it, it helps to bring us home. And Lamarad, you speak beautifully about prayer. I mean, you've mm. gone deep into prayer, maybe just a, a little bit of, you know, any, any guidance you want to give mm -hmm. for those who might want to deepen in that practice. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, prayer is something that I've often struggled with and pushed away, you know, and so I think in, in New Saints, it's been an invitation for me to return back to why prayer is so important. Um, but for me, prayer is about longing, and I just started really connecting to what I want to happen, right? Like, what is it that... I, that I'm like engaging in prayer for. And so the energy of longing is now what drives my prayer. You know, like I, we have to want something, right? Of course, ultimately wanting to get free <laughs> is a really, you know, great, great, you know, ultimate goal. But like, we just have to want things. We want people to be happy. We want people to be safe. And those are deep longings for me, you know? So I begin to feel that longing in my body like, and that longing isn't suffering. It's actually, it feels like something that's propelling me somewhere. Like, it feels like energy is being shifted and directed, right? And the object of prayer, like, who are we praying to? Well, ultimately, we're praying into emptiness itself, <laughs> right? We're shaping the phenomenal world around deep longing. And that's always what's happening, you know? And sometimes people are longing for harm and violence for others. And that's what's happened, you know? But when we start longing for people to get free, that really resonates like with the phenomenal, with emptiness itself. Emptiness is trying to invite us back into relationship. So prayer moves us, you know, prayer towards emptiness, 
a longing for everyone to be free moves us into a direct relationship uh, with emptiness and things and the universe and the phenomenal world begins to shape itself around liberation and yes getting free that's such a powerful just right there that thing that when we're in touch with the pure intensity of Mm -hmm. what we long for we are that energy actually shapes the world and one of the things i notice more and more is that I don't um, think of suffering as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I think of suffering mm-hmm. as a message or mm-hmm. a flag that in some way we are forgetting who we are. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so suffering is part of our kind of yeah. evolutionary equipment to mm-hmm. deepen attention. Mm-hmm. And then what you just described, we deepen attention. What are we longing for under that suffering? You know, it's like yeah. the, you can use the word freedom and sometimes the mind can glaze over with the word freedom. There's some very deep yearning mm-hmm. to be who we can be, to inhabit that wholeness, that emptiness, that love. And it's like when suffering drops us in mm-hmm. to go right into the center of the longing, yeah. then it's utterly transformational. And one of the things you have so many spots on in in this book I, I really wanted to you know invite you to dive into but one of them is this the suffering of trauma and mm-hmm. how in your own unwinding mm-hmm. it you dove right into the heart of trauma and you actually into the heart of generational collective yeah. trauma and you have a yeah. description of mm-hmm returning to the middle passage that was the most compelling story Mm -hmm. and i just i wonder if you can speak to that just a a bit to give a Mm -hmm. sense of Mm -hmm. what it means to really dive right into the heart of the trauma yeah absolutely you know in many ways it's like going to hell (laughs) (laughs) you know whatever you know whatever hell is for us like the one experience that we're always running away from always avoiding that one kind of deep hurt right, that has shifted everything else since then, you know. Um, and for me, you know, the the, uh, the Middle Passage um, for my ancestors really were, was the the first woundedness from which, you know, transhistorical trauma for, for a lot of Black folks, um, descendant from enslaved people, really, that's our trauma is really rooted in the Middle Passage. Um, and the the capture and the subjugation of Africans within vessels, right, packed away like cargo, sailed across these, you know, the oceans going to different countries, islands, and so forth, for perhaps months on end. And what was that like, right? And so um, with the support of... Um, ayahuasca the plant medicine ayahuasca um it really helped me to go back into this experience and to really metabolize both my personal trauma and collective trauma and i didn't you know of course metabolize all the collective trauma because that's something we all have to do but i was able to move through the trauma that i was holding on and self-identifying with right um, I, I talk about this in New Saint. I also talk about it in a collection called Black and Buddhist, which was, I think, released about two years ago now. Um, and I talk more in, in more detail in, 
um, in my essay in that anthology. Um, but yeah, for me, it's like we have to figure out where the root of trauma is and we have to return back. And we return back to figure out who we were before the trauma, right? Like, it's like you have to you have to get an experience of who you are outside of the experience, right? And then you're like, oh, that's where I'm trying to get back to. Like, this trauma state has been normalized, right? And now, and now I know that there's a different way of being, and that's what I'm going to work for now, you know? Um, you're just that teaching alone of in order to know yeah. who you are mm-hmm. beyond the trauma, you have mm-hmm. to go into the trauma and yeah. you're very very you have you hold it with a lot of compassion because you don't just say okay so just dive right in your trauma i mean obviously mm-hmm. you have to create the containers mm-hmm. of safety and sanity yeah. that allow us yeah. to do it in a transformational well, way yeah you have to train like this is like real training right um and i think that's something that we have to take more seriously you know it, it's taken me many years of training to be able to finally have that experience where, yes, it was the worst experience I've ever had in my life. Like it was the toughest thing that I've ever moved through, but I had the training, I had the support, I had the container, I had so many resources and that's why it happened because I was ready, you know, and I had to call upon a deep, deep courage right, to move through it. And that's, that courage is there for all of us, (laughs) right, you know, often people approach me, they're like, oh, Rod, you're so, you're so fearless, you're so courageous. And I, and I tell people, well, it's, I just don't give myself a choice anymore. Like, I really have worked hard to gather the resources that I need to do this work. And I rely on those resources, Right. And then I just call the courage is just a reliance on all the resources that I've gathered, the love and compassion of countless beings, you know, the care of my ancestors, the support of teachers and communities. Right. Um, a, my training in meditation and and other parts of practice really just come together and I have what I need. and I just have to hold space for the suffering that arises and to understand that like this is helping all of us get free. What what you're saying in a way points to trust. Yeah. Your training has given you enough trust in who you are and in what's possible when you open to reality. Like you know unequivocally that opening to reality is the way to go beyond the suffering. Mm -hmm. That is the way. And so that knowing that trust gives rise to courage and i think it's parallel to the process of forgiveness right or also you have to go right into opening into Mm -hmm. the heart to have the heart soften and open so the armoring starts to dissolve and you are one of the most brilliant people i know in guiding in the steps of forgiveness you have Mm -hmm. Is in a very discerning way created a sequence of steps that to me is psychologically and spiritually deeply wise. Um, so I want to again invite people who are listening, you'll find it in the New Saints this okay. sequence. And just to, uh, I'll just read one line mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that I think is so um, kind of captures it. 
what is forgiveness? I want more than to move past being harmed. I want the offender to be resourced, which means I want them to experience care and have what they need to be well. If they had what they needed, then maybe they would have had the capacity to hold space for themselves and others, reducing their potential to enact harm. So it's not just, you know, the letting go of, you know, the armoring, it's really caring about the offender. It's, it's a yes. big, big definition. So maybe to speak a little on that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and that, that, that's come out of like many years of contemplation around forgiveness. And I talk about this in the book, you know, particularly about how, you know, we get, we get pressure to forgive, like, because that's how we perform goodness. If we can just turn the other cheek, then we look really good, right? So in that way, I just felt like forgiveness is really determined by the offender. It's about like making the offender feel comfort, comfortable, you know, instead of actually asking the real question, <clears throat> which is what do I need to do in order to heal? You know, and my first thing isn't to forgive right it's to ask myself what i need now you know what how do i need to get saved how do i need to resource myself who do i need to ask for help right um also how can i forgive myself for being a victim you know like i just I, self-forgiveness when you've been harmed i think is really new for a lot of folks but i really just i found that over and over and over again in my personal practice that i just felt so much shame for being a victim for being hurt and i knew i know that those are just messages these cultural messages from systems about how you know i'm supposed to be strong i'm a cisgender man, I don't, I'm not supposed to be weak, blah, blah, blah. And I have to cut through that through self-forgiveness. It's okay, I'm human, right? We all hurt each other, right? And so taking care of myself and coming back into a space where I'm like, okay, now I have the space to actually consider the experience of the person who hurt me. And for me, the completion of forgiveness is the reinstatement of love for the person who hurt me. You know, I want them to have what they need. That doesn't mean that like people aren't held accountable, but it means that like in the accountability, people are resourced, right? Resourcefulness comes from being held accountable, you know, but as, yeah, as an offender, right? We also have to choose accountability as well, you know? And that's, that's a part of the healing process that we can't control. Right. It's like, I don't know if the person who hurt me will take accountability, will choose that, you know, but I want them to choose that in order so that they may actually feel care and restoration. Right. So they can reduce the harm and the violence that they experience for themselves and that they enact on others. What you do in this, to me, um, points to like the most common bypass I ever see, which is some idea of either, well, I've already forgiven that person, mm -hmm. or they don't deserve forgiveness, mm -hmm. or um, in some way, keeping the attention on someone else when the most difficult thing to do is to 
um, come into the reality of our own feelings of hurt and woundedness mm -hmm. and hold a space of kindness for what's here. As you say, the self-forgiveness, the self-compassion. People often skip that step. Yeah. And without it, they're actually mm -hmm. authentic forgiveness as possible yeah. until we have taken care of the wounded place. Yeah. And so I think of it as um, it's unfair to think we should be able to forgive others because until we have had that kind of inner healing, mm -hmm. our heart space can't really see clearly the other as a another being who is suffering. When people cause suffering, typically they're suffering. We can't mm -hmm. see that really. So, so I really appreciate how you put those steps together. And it kind of leads to, to the next this is something I've been really wanting to talk with you about. There's right at the beginning uh, a place in the book where you talk about the problem with veneration. Mm -hmm. uh, and you and I feel like it's a very brilliant analysis mm -hmm. of the violence of Christianity mm -hmm. that people venerated Jesus and in so doing separated themselves from Jesus. Jesus was mm -hmm. elevated and that put mm -hmm. us low. That means there's self-hate for our imperfections. Yeah. We project the self-hate on others mm -hmm. and violence. And you have um, encountered your own experiences mm -hmm. of uh, what happens when there's veneration. So you talk a lot about, mm -hmm. well, just what it called to mind is this mm -hmm. Serbian phrase that mm -hmm. goes, be humble, you're made of earth. Be known mm -hmm. from the stars, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's like, mm -hmm. we forget that all beings are from the earth and that yeah. there's no inequality really they're not so we put when we put people above us we we mm -hmm. cause trouble and mm -hmm. so i'd love for you to share your own experience mm -hmm. with that and what you've learned absolutely and i you know there's a lot of theology you know in the book and for me it's you know theology christianity is a root tradition for me um but I wanted to be very specific about how I talked about theology because I really wanted to start poking holes into or disrupting this experience of Christian nationalism. That's really, you know, it's like a tide, a tidal wave that's really like all over us right now, right? You know, and to really get into the heart of that, you know, and to get into this idea that like somehow there's been this separation between me and the divine. And because I don't know how to deal with that, it turns into a real kind of self-hate, right? Like that I will never be good enough, right? And, and that self-hate is weaponized. So I see that so much, you know, in the world and our politics and all the anti-trans legislation, you know, the reversal of Roe versus Wade, all of this, everything that's happening is this, comes out of this weaponizing of self-hate. You know, um, instead of doing the work of healing for myself, I'm just going to erase everyone and everything that reminds me that there's a freer way of being, right? Um, so for me, that is how I had to heal from the years of growing up Christian. And, you know, and it really started to inform how I returned back to a deeper relationship with, with Jesus, with um, the Christian saints, you know, and to my understanding of God as well that I offer in the book as well. I just wanted to be free, mm. you know, and I found my freedom 
and peace with Christianity um, through, through this process. And this is one of the reasons I went to divinity school as well, because I really wanted to study like the violence around religion, you know, and spirituality. Where did that come from? And what do what can I do to continue my healing and to help others to heal from this? You know. One of the most powerful elements of your book is you basically keep coming back to over and over again that whether you call it divinity mm -hmm. or essence, it is living through, shining through the source of all mm -hmm. of us. It's yeah. not out there. Yeah. Violence happens when we think that that beauty and that sacredness is other than what we are. Mm -hmm. And then when we praise and venerate it in another and then feel more diminished in ourselves. So you're, even the title, The New Saints, it's really all of us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Up, realize that. And um, so maybe as we're closing, mm -hmm. I just want to sense if there's anything else you want to say about this whole process of realizing our potential as new mm -hmm. saints mm -hmm. you know i would say that for me as we move forward um, into this period of apocalypse and for me apocalypse is about coming back into balance we're severely out of balance and so it's painful to come back right and so this is how i understand this period but we have to really develop a new ethic right now and that ethic is really about freedom not necessarily reforming old systems not trying to find comfort in systems that are crum crumbling but to really start dreaming into a liberated future what does that mean to live with people where our essential labor is just loving you know, and being loved and resting, you know, and taking care of ourselves and practicing collective care with one another, you know, and for ourselves. Like, that's the future that I am working towards. And I think that's the kind of future that Dharma is pointing us towards as well. So we have to really become these new kinds of saints, where that is the goal of our work, is this liberated future. Mm. That's a beautiful note to end on. And I, again, want to showcase the book because you're going to be seeing it on the shelves. Um, and thank you, Lama Rod. It's This is not the first time. You're one of you're the only person I think I've yet had um, two conversations with on this podcast. And right. it's always really a pleasure. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.